Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Introduce this by um, kind of telling you a bit of a story from the Pilgrim's Progress. Now, if you think I'm going to spoil this for you, I am, but I've told you like a thousand times that if you haven't read the Pilgrim's Progress by now, that's on you. Um, and so it's been out for longer than any of us have been alive. And so if you haven't read it, we do have copies back there, you should. Hopefully, I can entice you a little bit in this. Um, so in the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan is the author, and what an incredible author he was. He writes this book to kind of illustrate the Christian life through allegory, and um, there is a man, the main character of the story is a man named Christian. Christian is found outside of the city of destruction weeping. He's weeping because he's read the law. As he reads the law, immediately he feels a burden on his back. And that burden weighs him down. It's incredibly heavy. And so because of this burden that he feels, he, he, he's outside the city of destruction just weeping because he's so terrified that this burden will never be lifted from him. And as he's sitting outside that, that city, another character named Evangelist shows up. Evangelist walks up to Christian and he says, Christian, why are you crying? And he begins to explain to him that I have this burden on my back and I feel as though it will never be lifted. An evangelist begins to tell him good news, that there is one who is able to remove his burden from him, that should he go to this one, namely Christ, that should he find himself before the cross, that burden will roll away, that it will no longer be on him. He will be free from that burden and he will be able to continue the journey to the celestial city, heaven, free from that heavy weight. And so Christian rejoices at this news, as we all should that there is a means for which our burden can be lifted. And as he begins to, to start his journey, he goes through what we call the slaw of despond, and then he continues on, and he meets a man named Worldly Wiseman. Worldly Wiseman sees Christian with a burden on his back. And as he sees Christian with the burden on his back, he looks at him and he says, where are you going with such a heavy burden? He says, I'm going to the man named Jesus. And the, wicked, and the, and the worldly wise man looks at Christian and says, wow, that's a dangerous journey. It's a journey, a journey met with, with illness. It's a journey met with nakedness and sword. He even mentions a dragon. And then finally he says, in a word, that journey will lead to your death. And worldly wise men convinces Christian that he should not go to the cross. Instead, he should go to the town of morality. And in morality, there is a man named Legalist and his son named Civility. And he points Christian to this destination because he, he's told Christian that should he go there, that he can somehow relieve his burden of, of, of that complete weight of sin on his back. Yet as Christian begins this journey, he, he, he takes a detour. He doesn't continue toward the cross any longer. He takes a detour and he begins to approach Mount Sinai. Now we're familiar with Mount Sinai. It's the place the law was given. And as he approaches Mount Sinai, it's as almost as if the cliff is hanging over the path as a whole. And he begins to approach this pathway where the cliff is hanging over and immediately his burden becomes much heavier. It's almost as though it's weighing him down all the more. And not only is that burden becoming heavier and heavier, simultaneously he's thinking about walking under this path. And should he walk under that path and the mountain fall, then he would certainly be crushed. 
And as he's approaching it even more, we see lightning and thunder and fire come from above. Immediately he is met with the wrath of God very clearly displayed from the law. This morning what I'd like to do is to paint a very clear picture to you of what Christian was seeking at Mount Sinai and the alternative route, the appropriate route of continuing on and seeking after Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, John chapter 5 is where we'll be starting in verse 39. If you would, please, for the reading of God's Word, stand. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray together. Father, we come to the scriptures this morning trusting in their authority and their power. We come knowing, Lord, that all of what we have before us is written pertaining to you, Lord, that the scriptures is meant to point us to the living word. And Lord, that living word that came to dwell among us perfectly, fulfill all righteousness, die in our place, be raised on the third day, and now ever lives to make intercession for us, that is our hope and our hope alone. Lord, it's the only hope that actually matters. It's the only hope that can actually do something salvific. And so, Father, my plea this morning is that you would entice these people that perhaps have their minds set on their own good deeds, their own labors, Lord, that you would crush that. Lord, that they, like Christian, would see that weight and flee and run to Christ. So, Father, it is in the precious name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So what I'd like to do is explain to you just for a minute how we'll go about approaching this passage. Um, we write sermons to some degree in community here. Connor and I normally sit down on Sunday morning to kind of clarify a little bit. And as Connor and I discussed this morning, this passage is, is somewhat difficult to place in an order. Um, it's a very simple passage, but as we preach it, we want to do, do it justice and make sure that we cover everything at hand. And so what we're going to do is we're going to work off of two premises this morning. The first premise is a faulty one. The first premise is the individual who has set their hope on Moses. The first premise is ultimately Christian making his way to the city of, uh, of morality, seeking to be um, justified, seeking to have his burden relieved by the law. Um, I am convinced, by the way, that when John Bunyan penned this particular part of the Pilgrim's Progress, that he was looking at this particular passage. I'd be very surprised to find out anything contrary to that, but that's neither here nor there. But as you approach this, the first premise that we will come to is the individual who has set their hope on Moses, meaning their hope, that which they think is able to save them, is found in the law, meaning that they, by upkeeping and perfectly fulfilling the law, that they would be justified. Justified, let me clarify this language for you for a moment. Justification is not just you being free from the penalty of sin, but it's you being righteous that you might receive some reward from the Most High God. Meaning that you have some righteousness that clothes you, that when you stand before God, He will, based on your own merit, say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. 
what I'd like to do is walk with you through this particular um, idea, this faulty premise. Immediately following this, we'll discuss an appropriate premise, the one that Jesus actually believed and taught. So the first premise is the individual, the Jewish leaders, who believed that they were able to justify themselves. So notice what it says in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. So what I'd like to do is this faulty premise is that there is hope in Moses. So let's examine this. Let's try to figure out how they come to this conclusion. So notice what it says in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So the very first step of this premise is an individual searching the scriptures. Now, this is to be rejoiced in across the board. Any individual who begins to search the scriptures, we praise the Lord for that. However, they search the scriptures as means by which they, they can make themselves righteous before God and receive reward. Notice what it says in verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Jesus looks at these individuals who are searching the scriptures, who have set their hope on Moses, and essentially says to them, you say that you have hope in Moses, you don't even believe what he communicated. You don't even believe the things that Moses taught. And we'll look at that a little bit more fully here in a moment. So you search the scriptures and you don't believe them, as verse 46 says. Thirdly, you set your hope on Moses. Now let's examine for just a minute what it means to set your hope on Moses. If you would consider for just a moment all of the Old Testament writings, and particularly the book of Exodus, let's just take for a moment the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are simple. You should have no other God before me. You should craft no idols. You should um, uh, not take the Lord's name in vain. You should remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Those are just the first four, and those are pertaining to how we relate to God. Now, let's just ask a question this morning. How many of the Pharisees do you think had perfectly kept the first four commandments? I mean, even, even after they became faithful individuals, but we can just remember them even as children, perhaps it is that they had at some point or another committed some form of idolatry, very likely the idolatry of self. That the Pharisees would look to Moses, they would see, oh, I can do all of those things, I can make myself righteous before God, and immediately what they're doing is contradicting the law that stands before them. They're saying, I can perfectly fulfill these things, that when I stand before God, he will see me as righteous altogether. And so we see just in those first four commandments that they have in some way violated the law of Moses. Now here's the, the kicker here. They set their hope on this particular law, meaning that which they believe is able to save them is what is written in just, we'll just take these 10 commandments. They think that this is able to save. That should they keep these things perfectly, that they would be saved. And the, and the truth is, honestly, if they kept the law perfectly, they would be saved. They would. The issue is, it is an absolute impossibility to do such a task for multiple reasons, one of which is because their father Adam had imputed to them, given them the sin that he committed. It was given to them completely and totally, meaning that they were born. They immediately came into being as one who was contrary to the person of God. That meant that they longed, their own, they longed for their own glory over the glory of the one who is actually able to rescue them. You'll notice when it says in verse 44, it says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Their hope that is set on Moses is that they might accurately and do their best to fulfill the law of Moses that others might glorify them. That is by definition idolatry. It's by definition idolatry. 
looking at anything and saying, I deserve some glory, I deserve some reward. This is their hope. They've set on this because they long for their wages. They long for their glory. And every time they fulfill one aspect of the law, they're obedient to it. They make a check mark and say, God owes me one, God owes me one, God owes me one, all the while refusing to ever look in the mirror and saying that they are in constant violation to an endless amount of other laws. So they set their hope completely on Moses. Not only did they set their hope on Moses by fulfilling perfect righteousness, but simultaneously they have set their hope on a shadow instead of its substance. Throughout the book of Leviticus in particular, we find what we call ceremonial law. These ceremonial laws are meant to show that there is one coming who is actually able to save. So for instance, when you find in Leviticus chapter 16 an, an, an illustration or a, um, a way that you were to practice what we call the Day of Atonement, this would be a day that all of Israel would gather, they would bring in sheep, they would make sacrifices for these. It was the Passover lamb. The would go in, he would sprinkle blood on the altar, and then he would sprinkle blood toward the people, symbolizing reconciliation. The issue is, it was never meant to actually reconcile. It was meant to show them their need of reconciliation. Not only was it meant to show them their need of reconciliation, simultaneously it was meant to show them what was actually necessary for reconciliation, namely a blood sacrifice. And so they have all their hope in these things. Now I want you to consider for just a minute the idea or how they would actually live their life. I love the song Grace Alone, the one particular phrase, I worked my fingers down to the bone, but I could never atone. That's exactly what we have the Pharisees doing. The Jewish people who all their hope is set on Moses, they are laboring, they are working their fingers to the bone, and they are convinced, this is what is so incredibly um, humbling, is that they are actually convinced that this is able to save them. I think that we would be well to just take a moment and consider, are we in some way, shape, form, or fashion working for our salvation, knowing that we will never be able to atone for it? That we are having some checklist today that perhaps is not in regard to the Ten Commandments, but perhaps in regard to American Christianity, that we come to church, we do these things, that that is a means by which we labor for our salvation, and we would be as foolish as these people. We can never work our way into the salvation that God has ultimately provided for us in Christ. But what you find is these people are, are, are looking to the ceremonial law as their hope. They're obeying the moral law to the best of their ability, even though they'd be falling short. And that's where all their hope is. Absolutely every bit of their hope is in their ability to keep the law. And this is what's tragic. The one whom they have set their hope on looks at them and says, you are guilty. Notice what it says in verse 45 again. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses. Consider for a minute. You read the writings of Moses. In them, you're searching, you're, you're diligently looking into the things that Moses has written, and you consider that in Moses there is hope because I know that if I'm able to keep these things perfectly, then there's life for me. And all the while, as you're trying to perfectly fulfill all the requirements the law sets for you, it is looking back at you and it is screaming, you are guilty. You are completely incapable of meeting these. You're looking at the Ten Commandments and you're saying, look how I did number one, look how I did number two, look how I did number three. All the while, number ten is looking at you and saying, you're guilty and you've broken it all. That's the difficulty of the, the Ten Commandments. We look at it and we try to break it apart into different, uh, into different uh, commands. But in, in, in essence, what it is, it is a clear command on how we should live our lives to the glory of God. And should we break one, the whole thing is shattered. 
the whole thing is shattered. And so since they have an idolatrous heart from time to time, since they're prone to steal, not by way of walking in someone's home and snatching it from them, but by, by, by laboring over people and claiming that they have power that they do not, since they break these commands, they are found guilty. Moses looks at them as they have set their full hope on him, and he cries out guilty. Now, this is an incredibly difficult place to be, isn't it? The one you've set your hope on is looking at you and it's calling you guilty. He was the one who was supposed to save you. He was the one who was supposed to reconcile you to God. And all of a sudden, he's look at you, looking at you and saying, you're incapable of doing this. Why would you set your hope on me? And so what then is the end result for the individual who sets their hope fully on Moses in an, in, in an improper understanding of what Moses wrote? Their end is to pay the debt that Moses demands. We look at the holiness of God, we look at the law, and we consider that perhaps God will pass over us, that he will not actually execute the justice that he makes clear in his word. Friends, I would remind you, God is faithful. We say that frequently, and nine times out of ten, we mean it's, he is he's faithful to be kind to you. Friends, he is faithful to his character. He's faithful to his character, and that means that he is indeed faithful to save those who trust in Christ, but it also means that he is faithful to judge those who do not. Those who trust in Moses will bear the clear, clear penalty for their own depravity. They have rebelled against the holy God, and since they have rebelled against the holy God, Moses looks at them and he says very clearly, you set your hope on me, you failed, away with you. It's a tragic place to be. So interesting because the entire premise of the Jewish people in this particular day was to store up righteousness for themselves, and they demanded their wages. They demanded to stand before God and present all their righteous deeds before Him. And you can imagine that terrifying whisper that says, Away with you, evildoer, I never knew you. They demanded they receive their wages, and God was faithful to give them exactly what they demanded. They longed for glory. And all they received was wrath because that was the due penalty. Now, this is all based on a faulty premise. Every bit of this is based on a very faulty premise. The faulty premise is this. First, it is their understanding of the Scripture. And secondly, it is by that understanding of Scripture, it points them to lean on Moses as one who is able to save. So let's examine the first one real quickly. They approach the Scriptures as a means by which they could glorify themselves that they could stand before their peers and say, I am more righteous than you, therefore you should honor me. They approached the scripture as a means by which they could bring themselves fame, that they could exalt themselves. This is always, hear me when I say this, always a faulty premise. The scripture is not meant for you to come to and say, look how good I am, especially the Old Testament. It has a very clear implication, which we'll discuss in a minute. But this led them to honor and revere Moses as one who is able to save. Now, this is where I'd like to point out to you the folly of idolatry. Because there's nothing, hear me, nothing wrong with what Moses penned. Absolutely nothing. It was God-inspired. It had an original intent. And hear me when I say that when God does something that has an original intent, should we twist it and make it something different, it is not a surprise that it becomes something very dangerous. 
I would take, for instance, rather quickly, just the illustration of the benefits of being in a marriage relationship. Those benefits are meant to be had in the marriage relationship. Should you use them contrary to the way that God has prescribed, you should not be stunned when it bites you, when it burns you. It should not be a surprise at all. If God has prescribed a means by which we are to do something, then should we take a step out of that, we should not be surprised that iniquity brings forth death, trial, and tribulation. It really should not be a shock. And that's exactly what took place in this particular situation. The Jewish people begin to set their hope on Moses while Moses is saying, you're reading me wrong. You don't believe me. You're not even hearing what I'm saying. And we know that very clearly from verse 46. For if you believed Moses, for if you believed Moses, Jesus is looking at these people who say, I have an understanding of the scriptures. I approach them. I know them. I have them memorized. I've deposited them in my heart. And previously, even in verse 38, it says, and you do not have the word abiding in you. All of these scriptures that they've deposited into their minds have never actually permeated their souls. It's never made the impact that God intended for it to make because all they're doing is looking at it and saying, how righteous can I be? How magnificent, how exalted can I make myself? It is a faulty premise that leads to one conclusion that you can be made righteous by your own deeds. And should you do that, should your hope be on Moses, ultimately it's on your own deeds and you will stand before God and you will pay the penalty for your deeds. Now, said that's a faulty premise. So what I'd like to do is examine the importance, first and foremost, of Moses' writings. Now, last week, before we get into this, I made a claim. It's also the reason that the sermon from last week will not be up on the internet. Um, I made a claim that one particular teacher had stepped into a realm of heresy, saying that the Old Testament is not really a part of Christianity. We were to unhitch ourselves from it. This morning, what I would like to do, by God's grace, he gave me this passage, that we could examine this a little bit more fully and understand why the law is so vitally important to the Christian faith. Should we divorce ourselves from it, we will not have the entire revelation of God's word. and We will find ourselves not only often in the realm of error, but we will find ourselves not fully appreciating and savoring the beauty of the gospel. And so, let's examine this premise of the appropriate premise that Jesus himself describes how we should approach the Old Testament, see the validity, the importance of the law, so that we might more greatly savor the beauties of Christ. So, let's consider this from Christ's understanding of the Old Testament and the law. So, very first thing that happens, very similar to what we see in the Pharisees, you search the scriptures. You search the scriptures. As you begin to look at the scriptures, you pay very close attention to the writings of Moses. You're looking at them. Your first reaction is not how awesome am I and how cool I am. Is instead, man, I am actually incapable of meeting any of these requirements. He's asked me to not commit idolatry, and I do it every day in the depths of who I am. I, I am a, uh, John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory, that everything we do, we're prone to, to bring about some type of idolatry, more often than not, to glorify ourselves. And so we stand before the first commandment, and we fail. And I mean, can you imagine the trembling as you approach it for the first time and see these commandments and knowing that you can't even read past one without being found completely and totally guilty and worthy of death? And even past that, to make no false idols? To take those things that God has given to us and called them good and to twist them into something wicked. What an incredible, a horrid thing that the human does. We follow the father of lies. He is the king of iniquity, our enemy, and he has taught us how to do it very well. 
Not only that, but to not bear the name of the Lord in vain. Hear me when I say this, that's not you using a word. Instead, it is a matter of you carrying a banner and using it in an unworthy manner. For instance, it is bearing the name of Christ and not walking in the power and the hope and the glory of the gospel. That's what it means to bear the name of Christ. And, and, and I, I can't even tell you the times I fell at this. I mean, these commandments are peering me in the face and screaming at me, guilty. The only difference in the way the Jews read it at this day and time and the way that those who had trusted in Christ read it is they look at it and they don't look at it and say, I can do these things. They look at it and they say, I am lost. I I can't. I can't even begin to look into the ones that are how I am to relate to my brothers and sisters. I am fallen altogether. I can't appropriately serve the God who has rescued me or who has brought me into his family. How can I even begin to go past that and consider the lies that spew forth from my mouth or the covetousness where I long for something that another has or or even the the, the lust in my heart, whether that be for material or people. And, and 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 I'm altogether lost. What's interesting about this is they look at the writings of Moses and immediately they feel Moses' accusation. They look at it and they say, I'm guilty altogether, please. I must not stand before the court in my own stead. And so what I'd like to do is examine then what comes about from this. So if that's the state of every individual who reads the moral law, they realize they're fallen altogether. How can they even walk? How can they live? Where is their hope? And their hope is in the ceremonial law at this point. They look toward the sacrifices that are made. They look forward to the one who is coming that will be able to perfectly fulfill it. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we find a very clear illustration of what the Old Testament ceremonial laws were intended for. You see, the Jew that was saved by faith, because friends, understand this, There is no difference in the way Old Testament saints, those who were before Christ, were saved and the ones today. It has always been and it will always be salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. This has not changed between the Old and New Testament. It stands. It is as if the Old Testament saints are looking forward to the one who is able to save. They place their hope and their trust in him, and they will be saved. And we, by God's grace, look back on that day, and we celebrate that our sins have been paid for in full. And since that be the case, we are able to stand before God justified. There's no difference. There's no deviation. There's no separation in this. And so what you find in chapter 10 of Hebrews is this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the very first thing we want to clarify here is that the Old Testament sacrifices, the Day of Atonement, was not meant to actually justify those who came. It was meant to point those individuals to one who would perfectly fulfill it. It is a shadow of the true and better substance, namely Christ. And so what you find is as we look at these things, you can see the blood sacrifices being made. They could come, they could see the penalty for their sin, they could see animals being slaughtered, and they could see that they were in good company, that they were not alone in their guilt, that not only they themselves bore the guilt of breaking the Ten Commandments, but all of Israel stood before them and cried guilty. And they, some, some saw that it was not the substance, but it was the shadow. And they looked forward to the substance to come. And so what does it continue on to say in verse 2? Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers 
having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Those sacrifices did nothing but cry, guilty, but a provision will be made. That every individual who came, they saw the priest place their hand on that sacrifice and cry out the sins of Israel over them, and they would eventually take that lamb and slaughter it or one and move it from the camp altogether. That those individuals looked there, they thought about the fact that there would be one who would bear their sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so the Old Testament saints, as they look forward in their understanding, the biblical, truthful Jesus understanding of the Old Testament, they saw, they looked forward to, and they had hope in the one who was coming. Now, the beauty of this is as they were looking forward to fulfillment, there were many in this particular day who were not only looking forward to his fulfillment, but they actually saw it. What a sweet thing. Can we just imagine for a moment that throughout the entirety of your life, you've been looking forward to one who would be able to save, all the while feeling the guilt and the burden of the law, It's heavy on your back and you have to some degree perhaps skewed toward the city of morality, but all the while there is a pull in you to run toward the one who is able to save. And and as the weight of the law bears down on you, you're immediately met with the fact that there is one who is able to save. Year after year, it's there as a reminder. And yet on this particular day, there is one fulfilling it elsewhere in Jerusalem. I would point your attention to Galatians chapter 4, perhaps one of the sweetest passages in regard to this issue. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, notice this language, born under the law. Friends, why was it necessary that Jesus had to be born under the law? It was necessary because what was absolutely important was that God was not going to merit to us a righteousness that had not purchased by another. Christ was born under the law, that all the ceremonial aspects of the law, the perfect obedience that Christ would have would be contributed to your account. I mentioned earlier that the Jews had in them, as do we, the imputed guilt of our first father. Adam has given it to us. It is ours whether we like it or not. And people are mad about that. I hear people rage against that truth. Friends, Christianity is literally the exact same thing in reverse. You can't be mad that you have an imputed guilt and then, not, and then be thrilled by the fact that you have an imputed righteousness. It is always the means by which God has related to mankind. We have a representative. Your representative is either Adam, and in him you bear his guilt, or your representative is Christ, one who fulfilled all righteousness. This is why he was born under the law, that he might keep these things perfectly and then grant them to your bank account so that when you stand before God, you're not looking at him and saying, I did my best. Instead, you're looking at him and saying, look to Jesus. He is my mediator. He's the one who stands in my gap. He's the true God, true man who's ever living to intermediate for me. And so what you have is Jesus coming, being born under the law, ultimately to, as verse 5 says, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let me tell you the highest place that the law could ever get you should you be perfect. Should you perfectly keep the law, but perhaps turn you into a servant. Perhaps by his grace he might permit you to be his servant, to wait at his tables. Grace knows nothing of making you just a servant. Grace only brings you to sonship. 
This is crucial for us to understand. I spoke with a man the other day, one whom I love dearly, and he began to tell me the weight that he felt of his guilt and of the fact that he even felt as though God loved him but did not love him enough to make him a son. I pointed him to this passage. Friends, grace knows nothing of just making you a slave. Though you are here below a doulos, as Paul claims to be, it was his highest honor to be a slave of Christ. But know that when you enter into the kingdom, you will be nothing more than a son or a daughter, bearing the name that God has purchased for you in Christ. And so what you find is those who set their hope on Moses, they are completely at fault. But those who read the Old Testament appropriately never had their hope on Moses ever. It was never on Moses. They looked at Moses and all they felt was that burden being placed on them, much like Christian did as he walked toward the city of morality. He felt that weight. He felt that burden. And should we be wise, we would feel that burden too and immediately realize that should we long to be obedient, to make our own stone roll away, the own, the, our own burden roll off our backs. Friends, there was nothing actually offered to Christian in the city of morality except perhaps a numbing balm that would heal him of maybe the effects of that weight. But he would bear that weight. The beauty of this story is that Christian then begins to make his way and he goes through the wicked gate and he begins to approach the cross and as he approaches the cross immediately, his burden simply rolls away. You see, my friends, when we come to a passage like this, it's very clear the, the point that's being made. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and saying, you're, set your, you're setting your hope on one who has nothing to offer you but accusations and those accusations will stand in the high court of heaven. You will be justly rewarded for your perversion. It's a horrid place to be. But notice what it continues on to say. So Moses begins to accuse in verse 45. I love this language because all of a sudden Moses' accusations against me, I look at them and I say, yes. Yes, Moses accuses me. I'm guilty. I'm completely and totally guilty. I have violated each and every one of the moral laws. I have not honored the Sabbath day and kept it holy. I have coveted, I have lusted, I have murdered. I have done all of these things. I look to Moses and I say, you're right. You're right. I am guilty. I am ruined altogether. And then the saint will begin to sing. By grace and grace alone. You see, looking to Moses is not something, we don't look there now and say, away with it. Instead, we look to it and we say, yes, see my failures and my faults. But would you, in light of that, look to my king? Look to my king who is able to ransom and redeem me, who's able to take every ounce of that guilt, bear it in himself. That way, when I stand before God, I look at God's justice and I say, praise be to God, it's for me. Hear me when I say the same. The Old Testament is vital as our foundation to understanding the gospel in multiple ways. But friends, let me say this. It is the only thing that we have so that we can see very clearly the justice of God and in Christ we can see how the justice of God works for us. It works for the saint. Should you rest in Christ, there's no accusation that can ever be brought against you. Moses will condemn and Christ says paid in full each and every violation paid in full. To every single fault and failure, he says, my righteousness covers. And all of a sudden, we don't consider our sin as something that is waiting to come up behind us and get us any longer. You see, one of the biggest faults is should we remove just the justice of God altogether? And since we remove the justice of God, we remove the comfort from him being just. The justice of God is perhaps the greatest comfort my soul has today. Because I know that God is actually and perfectly just, which means the sin I commit past, present, or future 
have been paid for in full at the cross. And should God bring that charge against me, I have a grand advocate who will plead my case in full and he will win. When he stands before God and says paid in full, God's justice is satisfied and now there is no means by which he can bring a charge against me. There is no means by which a man can bring a charge against me and there is no means by which our great enemy and accuser can bring a charge against me. Moses cannot bring any charge. The enemy cannot bring any charge that Christ has not paid for in full. Friends, understanding the Old Testament, the God of justice, wrath, and fury is the most satisfying and perfect way to understand that those whom Christ has purchased with his blood, he will hold fast. If he did not do that, if Moses does not scream, kill him, and Christ say to the Father, sheathe the sword of justice in my side, then we stand before Moses with the accusations present, and we will stand before him with our hope set on him, and we will pay our penalty. These are the reasons the Old Testament is so foundational. Now, I would entice you, I would, I would ask you, I would make an application perhaps. The vast majority of Christians read the Old Testament wrong. They read it wrong. The Old Testament is not a collection of moral stories for you to abide by. Certainly, there are moralisms that can be pulled from it. The Old Testament is not solely or even primarily a collection of moral stories. The Old Testament, as you search the scriptures, is meant to point you to one individual. It is not something divorced from the New. The New Testament screams, look to Jesus. Friends, the Old Testament says the exact same thing. And I'll honestly argue at times all the louder. Look to Jesus. And I would encourage you that as you find yourself reading the scriptures, as you find yourself in the days of Numbers and Leviticus, perhaps you grow weary in reading your Bible chronologically around those points. Spend time looking into Leviticus 16. See the fact that the blood of goats and bulls is not able to take away sin, that you may savor the fact that you know the one who is indeed able. Or perhaps when you consider the ark, that that, that ark delivered them in perfect, uh, in perfect salvation from the flood of God's wrath, but you have a better ark? Or should you even look to Ruth and Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, that should you look to Boaz, you should see that we have a better kinsman redeemer, the one who is able to save us not only here below, but in the life to come. Friends, the entirety of the Old Testament screams and proclaims, this is about Christ. Look to him. And my prayer for you, saint in particular, is that when you find yourself reading the Old Testament, that you will see Christ clearly. He is there. Should you perhaps in your quiet time begin to pray, Lord, would you show me Jesus here? I'm convinced that he will do just that. And saint, I mean, sinner, you've read the Old Testament and you see a God of wrath and fury. You see it correctly. He is indeed a God of wrath and fury. But do not be dismayed. Do not, do, not, do not be so foolish as to believe the greatest illustrations of God's wrath are in the Old Testament. They are not. They are in the New. The cross of Christ, we see every ounce of God's wrath poured out on Christ that we might be rescued and redeemed unto Him. There's not discontinuity. It is perfect harmony. And I would tell you that perhaps you should be so wise as to feel the burden. Perhaps you should be so wise as to feel the burden. Do not be as the Jews who think to themselves, I can make myself righteous before God. Do not be as the one who says, I'll ease the weight a little bit by strengthening or perhaps even searing the conscience to where I no longer feel it. 
but would you be like Christian who said, I'm going to flee this wrath that's coming to me and run toward Christ who was able to make my burden roll away free from my own labors. And there I'm, I'm certain you will find perfect rest and hope and a, sal and a salvation that does not fail nor falter.